We're starting a Sunday school class series through an Orthodox catechism. I don't know why that's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't have control of my slide from here, so. Last week I said we're not talking about the classic Hercules or the cartoon Hercules, but the real Hercules, the preacher, Hercules Collins. Um, I don't know why it was going by itself, but anyway. Um, so I started last week with somewhat of an introduction, um, looking at the life of Hercules Collins and an Orthodox catechism um, itself, um, its, its origins, the context around it. Um, and I mentioned last week that I thought it would be good for us to uh, read the preface to the catechism together. Um, I've ordered a few of those, I think in between 10 and 15 of those uh, catechisms, they should be in in uh, the next few days here. So we'll have those uh, available for you. You can also find them online, but we'll be going through that um, for the next few months here with some breaks here and there to look at some other topics just to sort of break up the, uh, the, the time. But um, we're going to be working through an orthodox catechism um, uh, by Hercules Collins. Um, now, the orthodox catechism, I think I mentioned this last week, is really uh, Hercules Collins drawing and uh, really using the um, Heidelberg Catechism as a base, a platform for this catechism that has been sort of baptized, so to speak. It's Baptistic. And so um, the Heidelberg Catechism has more of a pedo-baptist uh, perspective and covenant theology, and an Orthodox Catechism is geared towards Baptist congregations. Uh, but he named this catechism an Orthodox Catechism to show that Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists, were in line and consistent in their theology with the broader Protestant church. Um, Baptists were being persecuted at this time because they were seen as sort of left field, that their teaching, their doctrine wasn't orthodox. They were wanting to uh, rebaptize, so they were called it sometimes rebaptizers, uh, because they believe in uh, credo baptism, that one should be baptized upon profession of faith. Um, not by virtue of posterity or their parents' faith. And so uh, Baptists were um, seen as not consistent with orthodoxy and also not consistent with the uh, state church, which was the uh, Church of England at the time. And so there was, there was uh, persecution even through governing authorities. This was a time in church, uh, in, in the history of the world in the church where the sort of cross and the uh, sword were melded together. Um, and there was uh, really forced compliance. And so General Baptists, uh, Calvinistic Baptists were seen as dissenters and those who were not consistent with orthodoxy. And so Hercules Collins, he names this uh, catechism an orthodox catechism. And even in that title, he's communicating, no, we are orthodox. We're not left field. We're not you know, uh, off on our theology, but we're actually consistent with what you believe with the exception of baptism. And so he draws from the Heidelberg Catechism, this pedo-baptist catechism, um, and builds on that. And even using that as a basis, it was an effort to say, uh, we are consistent with you. We, we don't, we're not trying to invent new religion here, but we want to be. And to show you that we are Orthodox, we're Protestant um, on the essentials of the faith. And so 
just some, some context there a little bit. You can go uh, and listen to the class that I taught last week to get more, more context there. But I thought it would be helpful for us to read the preface of the catechism together. And as, I, as, as we read this together, I'm going to just share some, some things um, in the life of Hercules Collins and the church that will, I think, maybe give a little flavor to even what we read in the preface. Um, I know you, you probably haven't spent a Sunday school class reading the preface of a book before, but I thought it would be helpful here um, as we just think about some, some context of this, this, this catechism. So those, those handouts are on the back table there. And we're just going to read through it together. So make sure you grab one because we're just going to break up the paragraphs and we're just going to work through it, work through it together. Now, the language uh, doesn't always in all the places sound like how we would speak today. So you have to bear with that and, you know, you sort of get the gist of, of what he's communicating there. But just read what you see there and then we'll we'll talk about it. So I want to, before we read the preface, um, talk about Hercules Collins and what was uh, spoken of about this man by those who knew him, a man that preached at his funeral, um, about his character, what kind of man he was. Um, from Joseph um, Ivemi's A History of the English Baptist, Volume 2, um, he says that he became, or Collins became a minister at a church in 1677 um, and watched over that church until his death. So a period of about 25 years, he was a pastor of a particular Baptist church in England there. Um, he attended the meetings of the General Assemblies in London. Um, we are indebted for what we know about this worthy minister, he says, um, in a sermon preached on occasion of his death by Mr. Piggott. So this uh, historian, Joseph Ivemi, he has, a, he has a record of the sermon preached at Hercules Collins' death, and it's by a man who goes by John Piggott. And this is what he says of Hercules Collins. How exemplary was his submission under personal and relative trials? I talked last week about how the church was persecuted. Um, Hercules Collins' own home was ransacked and uh, destroyed. And so they had to actually move their church because the pews, the pulpit, the windows had been destroyed um, by uh, the Anglican church as they looked at these Baptists as dissenters. Um, you're not consistent. This is new religion. And so they were uh, persecuting these Calvinistic Baptists and his church specifically was persecuted. Um, he says his own indispositions were frequent and great. Yet in patience, he possessed his soul and was always learning from the discipline of the rod. Um, I mentioned this last week as well, that the church and Hercules Collins himself were heavily persecuted. He was imprisoned uh, for violating something called the Five Mile Act, where he couldn't live within five miles of a borough of a, or a city or a town. And so he had to move. He, he violated this by continuing to preach um, within five miles of a borough, city, or town. Um, and he was actually imprisoned in what would have been the worst prison um, in London at the time, Newgate. And he, had, he was imprisoned with five other friends of his, uh, or three of those died. 
Um, the Lord preserved Hercules Collins. He got out and actually continued preaching, but had to move outside of really the city limits. And so you see in um, Mr. Pickett, this man who preached at his, his funeral, the same sort of tone, these trials he went through. Um, he was disciplined by the rod, he says, and how well he carried it under the affliction he had with a near relation you cannot but know. I confess that I thought him in that respect of one of the best examples that I ever could know. Surely no person could be more tender and sympathizing. And in reading Mr. Pickett, well, more of his sermon, he says that Hercules Collins was disciplined. He was afflicted. He was in prison, home destroyed, church destroyed. And yet he, he had this sympathetic heart. He remained sympathetic. And I think about how sometimes when we're persecuted, when we're alienated, when we're chastised, um, there can be a hardness and a calcifying of our heart and disposition over time. But um, he seemed to have maintained this tender and sympathetic heart, um, even towards his congregation and family. Um, let's talk about his, his persecution a little bit. Um, Ernest uh, Kevin wrote a history of Collins Church entitled London's Oldest Baptist Church, in which he outlines 300 years of church history at this specific church. He says, the church believed in prayer both for the nation and for itself with an almost monotonous re regularity for a great many years, days of prayer and fastings appeared. Now, remembering that this church was, again, persecuted, building destroyed, cast outside of city limits, they maintained and had this conviction about prayer. More than anything you see in the history of this church that Hercules Collins preached at, that these people were prayers. They, they, they were always praying and desiring to pray. Um, and it's you know, recorded, and we could believe that that's what the Lord used to uphold these believers this uh, church that, was, that went through such persecution. He says, there were days of grave national perils and the church entered into a national life with understanding and sympathy. For instance, the 11th of January, 1678, was a whole day of prayer and fasting. So again, on the 5th and the 13th of November and on the 11th, April, 1679, another day of prayer was observed. Here is a specimen um, minute from the church book of the time. So when we have meetings here, we have meeting minutes and we'll write them down and, you know, make them available to those who ask. So these are the meeting minutes from one of the meetings of, of this church. It says, this 12th of ye three, third month of May 1680, at a church meeting held in Old Gravel Lane, it was agreed that ye... Um, keep a day of humiliation upon ye next fifth day, come fortnight, between the sixth of ye clock in the morning and the ending at six in the afternoon. So from six to six, during this church meeting, they were calling for prayer. Um, no doubt for persecution, no doubt for their pastor. Um, Hercules Collins was at time threatened by another pastor that disagree with him on some matter. And the pastor said, I'm going to kill you. Um, and that pastor had to be excommunicated. 
Well, this man dealt with a lot of just terrible, terrible afflictions, not just from uh, the uh, uh, Anglican Church and the Church of England, but uh, in his own life. Um, he had a child uh, that his only child that died at the age of 12, it's recorded. And so there was just wave after wave that really beat against this man. Um, and yet he maintains this tender and sympathetic heart. Uh, the church believed in prayer both for the nation and for itself with an almost, again, monotonous regularity for many years. Um, Stephen Weaver, who did his, um, um, I always forget the dissertation. dissertation. Yes, um, on uh, Hercules Collins. He said, while working through uh, the Wapping Church minute book, I discovered festive account of, from 1677. The church had voted to withdraw fellowship from Oki in June of the year. Apparently, there was not, the, the, he said, that they were not okay with Oki. Okay, um, Oki was, uh, was responded by prayer for God to kill the pastor, Hercules Collins. So imagine there's a church in our area that despises, say, Ron, <laughs> or me, or Kyle. <laughs> and the pastor of this church says, we're going to kill Ron, or Dez, or Kyle. And he actually has a meeting. <laughs> and there, his church is talking about these, these type of things. Um, this is what Hercules Collins dealt with. They were not okay with this church. Um, and the church took the following further action Christmas Day, 1677. So after getting wind that there were these threats on the life of Hercules Collins for this disagreement, whatever it was, between these churches, um, Hercules Collins Church gathered. They had a meeting, and this is what they, they said. <clears throat> At the church meeting in Old Gravel Lane, the 25th of December, 1677, was John Oakey cut off and excommunicated from all the privileges of the gospel for the sin of lying and reviling and for refusing to hear the church. Together with this uh, in invocating of God from heaven to cut off and destroy brother Collins and saying also that he would be revenged. So this man, he invokes God and says, Collins, you will be destroyed. I will have my vengeance. And this church has a meeting <laughs> to talk about this. And this, um, this man ends up being excommunicated. And um, I was trying to read more and do more research here to see if this was the pastor at this church or this was just a, a member of, of, of this other church. But he evokes the name of God and essentially curses Collins and says, you will be destroyed by God. I will have vengeance. Um, well, you haven't been through anything like that yet. I don't think so. <laughs> but this man's life was filled with, with things like this. And we're going to see that as we read through the preface. So as we read through it, I'm going to break up the paragraphs and I'm going to stop every couple of paragraphs and read um, a, a few sentences to give maybe some context of what we see in the preface, just to give you an idea of uh, Collins and sort of the, just the backdrop to this, this confession um, or this um, catechism. So um, get a handout if you don't have it. So we're going to start... At the beginning of the preface there, unto the church of Christ. 
So I'll start there, um, read, read a bit, and then stop, and then have someone else read. So just be ready to so follow, and just be ready to, to jump in. Um, Unto the Church of Christ, who upon confession of faith have been baptized, meeting in Old Gravel Lane, London, grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied unto you, and the good will of him which dwelt in the bush be with your spirits. Amen. Let me have someone to pick up at Dearly Beloved. And you'll just read the next two paragraphs there. Dearly Beloved, for as much as there is but a small time allotted unto any of us in this world, and not knowing but my staff standeth next the door, next the door ready to depart, I am desirous in this respect so to bestow my precious and present time in my Lord's business, as I may not return to him with my talent wrapped up in a napkin, but may leave behind me some poor token and testimony of my love and duty towards him and his blessed spouse, the church. And for as much as the day we live is in, we live in is very gloomy and dark, full of error and heresy, which spreads more and more through the indefatigable endeavors of the maintainers of it, like an overflowing leprosy that eateth as doth the canker. Wow. Yeah, so st- <laughs> strong language there. Some words that we're not familiar with. I struggled with that one too as I read through it. <laughs> um, but you hear, like he's, what, what, what they're dealing with in this context is error, is heresy. I mentioned this last week. Do you remember the name of a man I mentioned that um, was really uh, a black eye on the uh, Calvinistic church at the time that made things difficult for the church, right? Remember, <clears throat> denied Orthodox Trinitarian theology. Thomas yes, Thomas Collier, um, a man that was initially involved in planting uh, Calvinistic Baptist churches, really turned and denied the Trinity and started to preach and teach out of these heretical views. And so the state church, the Church of England, is saying, Essentially, we knew that you guys were, were, were heretics. Um, some understood that Collier's teachings were not representative of the wider Calvinistic Baptist community, but some did not. Some took what he said and thought as representative of what all Baptists believed. And so there was even more persecution. And so that was one instance, one, one big situation that was happening in this context and others as well. And you hear that when he says, very gloomy and dark, full of error and heresy, which spreads more and more and eateth as doth a cancer or a canker, right? Um, Ernest Kevin wrote that uh, December 20th, 1692, about 290 persons were removed from, so he's, he's um, quoting the minutes of a church, uh, of this church, 290 persons removed from our church in the course of less than 18 years. About 216 by death and others rent, withdrawn from, and excommunicated. These are in the minutes of the church, 290 removed over 18 years. Um, these minutes of the early years are full of disciplines carried out against defaulting members, and the cases are numerous of those who were to be considered as rent from us or excommunicated from us. 
These pages are regrettable reading, he says. But it must be remembered that the true church had great foes at the time. The country had witnessed the degradation of religion, not only through error and superstition, but also through laxity and life and conduct. So just morals were withdrawn. It is no small wonder, therefore, that the lenders of the church were severe in their treatment of all delinquents. It is surprising and painful to learn that swearing, theft, drunkenness, and adultery were the occasions of such discipline. Uh, that sounds a lot like um, the church in First Corinthians and many, many churches. Um, but you, you see this effort of the church to practice church discipline to keep the church pure. Um, so not, as uh, Colin says, allowing the, 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 can the canker, or you can even say cancer, to spread, but uh, trying to deal with these things. And you can just imagine us being in a context where we're being disciplined heavily by the governing authorities, which are Anglican at the time, or carrying out the will of uh, the state church. And we're trying to be faithful as this Calvinist Baptist church and we have those who maybe leave and they spread heresy and gossip about our church, which makes it even more difficult. Our church is being destroyed. Our when you come Sunday and the windows are busted and the pulpit is busted and the pews are torn up. And we're like, okay, well, what do we do now? So we have not only theological turmoil, but we have physical turmoil and we have this persecution from outside, threats from inside. That was the life of this church for a long time as they dealt with persecution. Um, okay, let me have someone pick up someone else uh, at also considering, and then you'll read um, the next uh, three paragraphs there. Also considering it is a day of great declension and love to God and one to another also. And those gospel truths, the least of which is more worth in our lives. All which may give God just cause to say to England's professors, as once to Israel, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone away far from me? As if God should say, Am I not the same as ever in power, goodness, and faithfulness? Is not my word and ordinances the same? Yea, my promises in heaven the same now as ever? <coughs> Now that you may not be shaken, shattered, and carried away with every wind and blast, every puff and breath of error and heresy, also that you may be better established, strengthened, and settled on that sure rock and foundation of salvation, Christ's merits, in opposition to the poor and perfect works of an impotent creature, also settled on the foundation of church constitution, on which you are already built, through the grace of God, which stirred you up to search the divine oracle and rule of divine service, as Ezra and Nehemiah searched into the particular parts of God's worship, by which means they came to the practice of that almost lost ordinance of God, the Feast of Tabernacles, which for many years was not practiced after the due order, though a general notion was retained about it. I say, under these considerations, I have it. I have in charitable regard to your souls presented you with this small, but I am bold to say, sound piece of divinity, which may not unsuitably be styled an abridgment or epitome to of law and gospel, 
suited to everyone's capacity in God's house. Here is milk for babes and meat for strong men. Okay, pause there. Thank you. <clears throat> so he's saying here that um, he wants to present for his own congregation and for Calvinistic Baptist churches um, a, a, a piece of truth, uh, something that concisely uh, shares doctrine and theology, not only for the learned, but also for the unlearned, not only for the men and women, but also for the children. And so it's, it's put together um, and styled in such a way that's meant to be, as he says, uh, milk for babes and meat for men. And so there's this desire, as I see in the heart of this pastor that says, I want this to be useful for all. Um, not just some, not the smart, not the unlearned, not the learned, but all. So, um, and then remembering also, I mentioned last week that he would have been preaching in a context, it was really like a sailor's town. It wasn't like high, high London. It was on the outskirts where fishermen and it would have been a primarily blue collar town. Uh, but he wanted to provide them something that was useful and helpful. It was orthodox, clear, concise, but also um, in such a way that it was accessible to them. Okay, so keep, keep that in mind as well, his, his, his audience, his, his context. Um, okay, Jeremy, you can pick up. Uh, it may not unsuitably be compared to the waters of the sanctuary, where some may go up to the ankles, others to the knees, others to the loins, and they are deep enough for others to swim in. Here you are not only taught to be good Christians, but good moralists, the wane of which among them that have the leaves and lamps of profession as it is to be feared, such had little more, is of a heartbreaking consideration to many that desire to walk with God. Now, albeit here may be many things which some of you may, all, may know already, yet unto such those things I hope will be acceptable as St. Peter's epistles were to the scattered saints. Though they knew much of the matter before, Yet I dare say, here is some things which may be information as well, before information, as well as establishment to the most knowing among you. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so you can, in reading where he says, I want, you, I want to teach you to be good Christians, but also good moralists. Now, um, remembering context here, so this isn't um, sort of... Uh, therapeutic deistic moralism, you know, that we sort of hear in, in our day that God is basically, we're, we're on the couch, he's our therapist, he's asking us what we want to do with our lives and how he, how he can make it better for us. This is in a context in a time where uh, London, England as a whole is experiencing this demoralization in its culture and context where uh, drunkenness, uh, idolatry, stealing, all these things were becoming more and more rampant in the culture. And so he says essentially here that your theology, as you learn about God, ought to inform how you live, your, your, your conduct, right? So a knowledge of God and then also a centered moral compass to which, in which you can engage in society and culture and church. That's the context around this. Um, theology and also conduct. And it stuck out to me also when he said that um, 
as, as a pastor writing to his, his congregation and others that St. Peter's, uh, he's re- reminded of St. Peter's epistles where he says it, it's no small thing. We, we, we talk about this a lot when we pray before the service on Sunday. Um, sometimes we're praying, you know, around was he'll pray and say, I, although these people know this, I know by, by, by way of reminder, I want to stir them up. Um, and this is what you see here in Colin's own, own thinking, to stir the people up by way of reminder. Um, Mr. Piggott, again, or, uh, the man who preached at Colin's funeral, he said this, Collins was one that had a solid acquaintance with divine things about which he always spoke with a becoming seriousness and a due relish. And I must say, I hardly ever knew a man that did not more constantly promote religious discourse, a practice almost out of fashion. In other words, he was saying, talk about the Bible. Discuss the Bible, making context in which discussion around the scriptures can happen and himself always sharing about the scriptures, always promoting. He says, I don't know someone who was more bent on religious discourse, talking about the scriptures. Um, He showed an an unwearied endeavor to recover the decayed power of religion. For he lived what he preached, and it pleased God to succeed these endeavors in the gospel after a wonderful manner. Um, Remembering even last week when I mentioned that uh, Collins wasn't someone who was formally educated like many Puritans, um, at least at that time in in the Church of England and other Protestant churches were educated at, you know, uh, uh, these uh, predominant um, uh, institutions. But he was someone who, it's recorded, grew in knowledge and his sharpness about the scriptures through conversation, speaking with those who knew the word, sharing the word. He was in conversation with them. And that's um, those who wrote of him say that this is how he grew in his knowledge of the scriptures, reading the scriptures and talking about the scriptures with other believers, um, which is just really interesting to think about. Uh, Let me have someone pick up at I have not undertaken. And you'll read that and then the next paragraph as well. Okay, so you remember what we said about that? You, you see what he's communicating there? Remember the context? Remember what he's trying to say to the Church of England and to others, right? I concenter, which means I, I center around, join and centering around the most orthodox divines in the fundamental principles and articles of the Christian faith. I, with you, Concenter, circle around those most orthodox articles of the faith, right? So he's, again, communicating, even in this preface, we're not heretics. We're actually orthodox, along with you. Sorry. Pick up, Crystal. And also have industriously expressed them in the same words, 
which have on the like occasion been spoken, only differing in some things about church constitution, wherein I have taken a little pains to show you the true form of God's house, with the coming in thereof and the going out thereof. But I hope my zeal in this will not be misinterpreted by any that truly fear God, that God whom we serve is very jealous of his worship, and forasmuch as by his providence the law of his house has been preserved and continued to us, we look upon it as our duty in our generation of be searching out the mind of God in his holy oracle, as Ezra and Nehemiah did the Feast of Tabernacles, and to reform what is amiss as Hezekiah, who took a great deal of pains to cleanse the house of God and set all things in order that were out of order, particularly caused the people to keep the Passover according to the institution. For it had not, saith the text, been of a long time kept in such sort as it was written. And albeit the pure institutions of Christ were not for some hundreds of years practiced according to the due order or very little through the innovations of Antichrist, and as circumcision for about 40 years was in practice in the wilderness, yet as Joshua put this duty in practice, as soon as God signified his mind in that particular, so we having our judgments informed about the true way of worship, do not dare to stifle the light God hath given us. Okay, thank you. So a lot in that paragraph, um, he talks about church constitution, um, in other words, how churches ought to be governed um, as uh, independent of or independent. So each church having, um, as the confession says, within itself, all that is necessary through Christ's wisdom and power to be governed, to practice discipline, to be given the keys of the kingdom. That's what he's getting at um, and saying still, I hope my zeal will not be misinterpreted. Um, I want to be clear. I want to be true to the scriptures, but please don't misinterpret it. He's, he's presenting truth in some of these distinctions, but at the same time saying, uh, don't, don't take it beyond what I'm saying. Um, we are consistent. We are orthodox, but we do have differences. Um, and he'll, he'll talk about that again in the uh, next few paragraphs there. Um, okay, so I want to pick up at now, albeit, and then read the next two paragraphs there. Now, albeit there are some differences between many godly divines and us in church constitution, yet inasmuch as those things are not the essence of Christianity, but that we do agree in the fundamental doctrine thereof, there is sufficient ground to lay aside all bitterness and prejudice, and labor to maintain a spirit of love each, each to other, knowing that we shall never see all alike here. We find in the primitive times that the baptism of Christ was not universally known. Witness the ignorance of Paulus, Apollos, the, the eminent discipline and minister, which know only the baptism of John. And if God shall enlighten any into any truth, which they shall stifle for base and unwarrantable ends, know that it is God must it is God must judge and not man. And wherein we cannot concur, let us leave that to the coming of Christ Jesus as they did their difficult cases in the church of old, until there did arise a priest with Urim and Thummim that might certainly inform them of the mind of God thereabout. Okay, pause there. So, governance and baptism upon profession. Right. So, he's saying, not even you all agree on everything. We won't agree on, on everything, 
Um, yet those things which are fundamental, we do agree on. Um, and if we can agree on those things which are fundamental, he said, let's lay aside all uh, bitterness and prejudice and labor to maintain the spirit of love each to others. Right? He's speaking of this, this persecution, um, this, this what, what he was going through as, as a man with his family and as a church, this persecution. We agree on the fundamentals. Let, let us put these, the, the, the bitterness associated with these other things aside. He's not saying that they're not important. He's saying that they shouldn't be cause for persecution um, and the destroying of these, these churches. Um, and then he goes on to say that uh, using this uh, picture of uh, Apollos and when he's, uh, he's, he's preaching the gospel and it says he only knew of, uh, of, of Christ or the uh, way of Christ and not, not um, other things about uh, the, the ministry of Christ and uh, those came along and enlightened him. Um, and after he was enlightened, he was accountable essentially to what he knew. Um, and ought to, to, to preach from that. And he says, in a similar way, um, we have, these things have been enlightened to us. We see and recognize uh, these things which are consistent with scripture, and we essentially can't but do what is clear in our consciences as we see it in the word of God. Um, so again, he's sort of making this argument for uh, why they teach what they teach, what they believe, and how they are clear on the fundamentals along with the broader church. Um, okay, so pick up at, someone else pick up at, I have proposed three creeds. I have proposed three creeds to your consideration, which ought thoroughly to be believed and embraced by all those that would be accounted Christians, namely the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, and the creed commonly called the Apostles, the last of which contains the sum of the gospel, which is industriously opened and explained, and I beseech you, do not slight it because of its form, nor antiquity, nor because supposed to be composed by men, neither because some that hold it maintain some errors, or whose con conversation may not be correspondent to such fundamental principles of salvation. But take this for a perpetual rule, that whatever is good in any, owned by any, whatever error or vice it may be mixed withal, the good must not be rejected for the error or vice sake, but owned, commended, and accepted. Here is also in the close of the book a brief but full exposition of that prayer Christ taught his disciples. Also, the Decalogue or Ten Commandments unfolded. Mm, thank you. So here he points back to the creeds of the third and fourth century. Um, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, um, Athanasian Creed. And I mentioned this last week as well, that the reformers considered themselves retrieving catechesis, which had been lost in the church during the medieval period. So they saw themselves as standing on the shoulders of men in the earlier church as they um, confessed, as they had uh, had a conviction about catechizing um, a different format, but the same conviction. And so they were trying to retrieve this. And here, uh, Collins, as he picks up with um, um, uh, Ursinus, uh, put together in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, affirms the same, that these things, we, we may not agree with everything around the context or even in the broader teachings of Nicaea, uh, but the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, it's so-called so the Apostles' Creed, uh, we ought to see in it 
truth and be willing to be discerning and say, well, this is good about this. Let it be of use rather than saying, well, there are these other things over here that I don't really like. So let's, let's just t- toss the whole thing aside. He says we ought to be, be discerning in some sense and know what can be maintained and taught and preached even um, and use uh, and, and be useful in the teaching of, of the faith um, while being able to reject those things which are not. Um, then he goes on to the Ten Commandments and um, the uh, Decalogue. But there was a, th- there's an effort at retrieving here when he speaks of the, uh, those early ancient uh, creeds and confessions. <clears throat> All right, let's, let's pick up at uh, now for as much. Let's have someone read that paragraph. Conscientiously. Conscientiously read these those divine oracles which hold forth their duty to their children. It would doubtless be to them a great advantage. Thank you. Just a great paragraph there concerning discipling our children. Um, he these words to his church to the um, broader Calvinistic Baptist world. You hear this, some of the things that we discussed today were discussed then. Something you might hear today is, well, um, you haven't uh, baptized your children, uh, yet you are, you wanted to teach them, you wanted to catechize them. Aren't you expecting, you know, an unbaptized, unbelieving child to do what a believer would do and trying to teach them the commands and expecting obedience? We would say, one, the scripture commands that in Ephesians 6, Deuteronomy. And two, we stand in a long line of, of Calvinistic Baptists who taught and encouraged the same thing. This pastor writing to his church and others saying, do well to train up your children, to catechize them, to uh, show them the way of truth. As you love your own souls, love your children. And in this context, he's saying a love for your child looks like teaching them the ways of God. And Again, just this, this pastor's heart for his people um, that they would hold truth, that they would love truth, that they would concern themselves with the everlasting welfare of their children. 
And so thinking about this catechism, he's given this, provided this for that end. Right. So he believes it. But he also says, OK, here's something to help you to that end, to catechize your children, to teach them um, the, the, the scriptures. He says, I've gone through, through a great deal of pain in gathering these things. Go through a little pain in reading it. <laughs> um, go through a little pain in, in, in living it. Um, it's a, a great, a great paragraph there just for the encouragement of teaching our children um, and the expectation that we will teach our children the catechisms and these, these, these things. When he speaks of this book may be a advantage, is he speaking of the Bible? Where, where, where are you? Sorry. Uh, about the middle? Um, yeah. Yes, the catechism. Okay. Yep. All right. I'm going to close on this last, last paragraph here, or last, last five minutes. And for, and for this that I have presented to public view, I beg the reader's kind indulgence as to the faults escaped therein. And for an orthodox... Ca- <laughs> um, where was I? Uh, those who the Lord committed to my charge, that the eternal God may be your refuge and underneath you everlasting arms that grace may be open to your hearts and that your hearts to grace, that the blessing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may be upon you and the eternal spirit may be with you, shall be the prayer of your unworthy brother, but more unworthy pastor, H.C. Hercules Collins. I love how he ends that. It's very pastoral. Um, It's sympathetic. It's tender. Um, and this effort, again, to put something into the hands of his people and to expose the broader Calvinistic church um, and orthodox catechism, a teaching uh, concise, consistent with uh, scriptures, consistent with the broader uh, Protestant world, and orthodox, consistent with what is taught throughout the history of the church and the life of the church. So, again, um, I know that was an effort, but I wanted to just read that. I thought it would be helpful as we do get into this series on an Orthodox catechism to have some context for uh, Collins, uh, the church there in England, um, the context of persecution in this man's own life and the church life um, as we work through these different things. Um, It's about 148 questions. It's question and answer. Um, and we're going to work through those with texts and just look at what the word says about these things. But I thought this preface would be helpful to read just to hear this pastor's heart for his church. Um, I do share and sympathize with his heart for his local church, as I have a heart for, for you all. Um, but let me pray and then we'll close out and you'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for um, your wisdom in the church as you have uh, confirmed the church through the teaching of the scripture as you have given the church uh, a mind and skill and ability to be able to pin these different things, these concise uh, catechisms and confessions and creeds for our growing, our learning. Um, May we see and realize and feel the weight of uh, standing in a long line of faithful men and women, some who have uh, perished Um, and upholding these creeds and confessions and even catechisms. Um, And Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, the mind of Christ as we work through these things, that we would be um, 
a learning people, a discerning people, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow us in our affection one for another and in affection for your word. Uh, may you bless us this day on the Lord's day as we receive from you the blessings of what Christ has purchased through the means of grace to our souls. Um, Lord, glorify yourself in our weaknesses and may you be pleased to accept our worship. In Christ's name, amen.